0: Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for that he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. These verses show us our Lord again working a miracle. He heals a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand, always about his father's business, always doing good, doing it in the sight of enemies as well as of friends. Such was the daily tenor of our Lord's earthly ministry. And he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 Blessed indeed are those Christians who strive, however feebly, to imitate their master. Let us observe in these verses... How our Lord Jesus Christ was watched by his enemies. We read that they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. What a sad proof we have here of the wickedness of human nature. It was the Sabbath day when these things happened. It was in the synagogue where men were assembled to hear the word and worship God. Yet even on the day of God and at the time of worshiping God, These wretched formalists were plotting mischief against our Lord. The very men who pretended to such strictness and sanctity in little things were full of malicious and angry thoughts in the midst of the congregation. Proverbs 5.14 Christ's people must not expect to fare better than their master. They are always watched by an ill-natured and spiteful world. Their conduct is scanned with a keen and jealous eye. Their ways are noted and diligently observed. They are marked men. They can do nothing without the world's noticing it. Their dress, their expenditure, their employment of time, their conduct in all the relations of life are all rigidly and closely marked. Their adversaries wait for their halting, and if at any time they fall into error, the ungodly rejoice. It is good for all Christians to keep this before their minds. Wherever we go and whatever we do, let us remember that, like our master, we are watched. The thought should make us exercise a holy jealousy over all our conduct, that we may do nothing to cause the enemy to blaspheme. It should make us diligent to avoid even the appearance of evil. Above all, it should make us pray much to be kept blameless in our tempers, tongues, and daily public demeanor. That Savior, who has watched himself, knows how to sympathize with his people and to supply grace to help in time of need. Let us observe in the second place the great principle that our Lord lays down about Sabbath observance. He teaches that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This principle is taught by a remarkable question. He asks those around him whether it was lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath day, to save life or to kill. Was it better to heal this poor sufferer before him with the weathered hand, or to leave him alone? Was it more sinful to restore a person to health on the Sabbath than to plot murder and nourish hatred against an innocent person, as they were doing at that moment against himself? Was he to be blamed for saving a life on the Sabbath? Were they blameless who were desirous to kill? No wonder that before such a question as this, our Lord's enemies held their peace. It is plain from these words of our Lord that no Christian need ever hesitate to do a really good work on Sunday. A real work of mercy, such as ministering to the sick or relieving pain, may always be done without reservation. The holiness with which the fourth commandment invests on in the Sabbath day is not the least degree invaded by anything of this kind. But we must take care that the principle here laid down by our Lord is not abused and turned to bad account. We must not allow ourselves to suppose that the permission to do good implied that everyone might find his own pleasure on the Sabbath. The permission to do good was never meant to open the door to amusements, worldly festivities, Travelling, journeying, or sensual gratification. It was never intended to license the Sunday railway train, or the Sunday steamboat, or the Sunday exhibition. These things do good to none, and do certainly harm to many. They rob many servants of his Sabbath day rest. They turn the Sunday of thousands into a day of hard toil. Let us beware of perverting our Lord's words from their proper meaning. Let us remember what kind of doing good on the Sabbath His blessed example sanctioned. Let us ask ourselves whether there is the slightest likeness between our Lord's works on the Sabbath and those ways of spending the Sabbath with for which many contend, yet who dare to appeal to our Lord's example. Let us fall back on the plain meaning of our Lord's words and take our stand on them. He gives us liberty to do good on Sunday, but for all feasting sightseeing party-giving excursions he gives no liberty at all let us observe in the last place the feelings which the conduct of our lord's enemies called forth in his heart we are told that he looked around them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart this expression is very remarkable and demands special attention it is meant to remind us that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man like ourselves in all things, sin only excepted. Whatever sinless feelings belong to the constitution of man, our Lord partook of and knew by experience. We read that he marveled, that he rejoiced, that he wept, that he loved. And here we read that he felt anger. It is plain from these words that there is an anger which is lawful, right, and not sinful. There is an indignation which is justifiable, and on some occasions may be properly manifested. The words of Solomon and Paul both seem to teach the same lesson. The north wind brings forth rain, and the backpiting tongue angry looks. Be angry and do not sin. Proverbs 25.23 and Ephesians 4.26 Yet it must be confessed that the subject is full of difficulty, Of all the feelings that man's heart experiences, there is none, perhaps, which so soon runs into sin as the feeling of anger. There is none which, once excited, seems less under control. There is none which leads on to so much evil. The length to which ill-temper, irritability, and passion will carry even godly men all must know. The history of the contention of Paul and Barnabas at Antioch and the story of Moses being provoked until he spoke unadvisedly with his lips, are familiar to every Bible reader. The dreadful fact that passionate words are a breach of the sixth commandment is plainly taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet here we see that there is an anger which is lawful. Let us leave this subject with earnest prayer, that we may all be enabled to take heed to our spirit in the matter of anger we may rest assured that there is no human feeling which needs so much cautious guarding as this. A sinless wrath is a very rare thing. The wrath of man is seldom for the glory of God. In every case, a righteous indignation should be mingled with grief and sorrow for those who cause it, even as it was in the case of our Lord. And this, at all events we may be sure of, it is better never to be angry than to be angry and sin. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you perfectly ask yourself and others the following questions? Do we live as those who are watched by the world around us, as those who bear the name of Christ and either live to commend the gospel or drag it through the mud? Do we pray as if our witness depends on it? Secondly, are we quick to justify our anger? Or do we realize that anger, even for righteous purposes, is a short jump away from sinful anger? Is anger an area in my life that gives Jesus a bad name to the watching world?